Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the mighty and awesome speaking God. And uh, we pray this afternoon that whatever might be occupying our minds, whatever might be worrying our minds, uh, whatever sleeplessness we might be feeling right at the moment, we pray, Lord, that you would cast them away so that we might clearly hear your word and not only hear, but heed. And please help me to speak and please help my voice to last so that we might be encouraged uh, as we look at 2 Kings 13 together. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, today we come to the end of an era. So you might remember this. uh, Since August last year, we've been following this narrative of Elijah and Elisha, the two great prophets of God. Uh, It's been a long slog, a good one. Uh, But as Matt just read for us, Elisha in 2 Kings 13, he dies. And that spells the end of this era that we've been in for, for almost you know, over a year of Elijah and Elisha. And sometimes the coming of an end of an era, it can be a good thing, particularly if it's been a hard time or a hard period. Uh, one of my favourite uh, recent era ends is the end of toddlers in my house, not because I got rid of them, don't worry, uh, it's just because they've grown up. And toddlers are fun, they're cute, all that sort of stuff. But I love the end of nappies. I love the end of prams. I love my personal favourite, the end of car seats. I hate car seats, children restraints and harnesses. And you put them in the car and you take them out of the car and you put them in the car and the sweat that comes with that and sometimes the unhelpful words that come out of your mouth with that. See, the end of an era can be a good thing, can be great. Something's come to an end and it's good. But sometimes the end of an era can spell disaster. And uh, I won't name any names or parties or anything happening in the UK at the moment. Uh, But the end of certain political leaders and their parties, we know historically, has brought disaster. You know, a leader has been leading in their parties, whatever it's been, a new leader comes in, a new party comes in, and they're hopeless. There's, There's economical and political instability with this new leadership. We've seen that in the history of our world. And what we have with the end of this era of Elijah and Elisha is the beginning of disaster. See, chapter 13 is the beginning of the end of the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, there's, there was Israel once, there were one uh, nation, and they got split into two. You've got the north kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And chapter 13, it begins the end, it's the beginning of the end for the northern kingdom of Israel. When we get to chapter 13, it's not very far away, that northern kingdom will be destroyed. It will be no more. And what else would you expect? Because all that has been good in the northern kingdom of Israel, as far as the leadership is concerned, all that's been good has been found in Elijah and Elisha. And now they're both gone, and so now there is no good left in Israel. I've got this graphic up on the screen for you to have a look at. Uh, It's one I've got up on my wall at home. It's a bit small, but hopefully you can see it from where you are. Uh, But it's really helpful because what it does is it shows you the good, the bad, and the mediocre kings of Judah in the south and uh, Israel in the north. And so if you look at the graph there, the white blocks and the the thumbs up are those who followed God. They're, They're the good kings. Uh, The black and the thumbs down, they're the evil kings that were evil before God. And the grey, they were the so-so kings. And as you can see on the graph there, with the kings of Judah on the left-hand side, so the ones on the left, there are a smattering of good kings. There were good kings in Judah. Uh, Still a bunch of evil ones, but there were some who were faithful to God. But if you look to the kingdom of Israel on the right, all of them 
bum, bum, you know, thumbs down. You know, not good. That evil in the sight of the Lord, all of them. It's incredible. Not one of the kings of Israel were truly faithful to God. And so now that the good and godly prophet Elijah was gone, and now, as we read in this chapter, Elisha dies, what hope is there for the northern kingdom of Israel? There's no good in Israel. They're hopeless now. And so what we'll see with this chapter is the beginning of the end for that northern kingdom of Israel. So let's jump straight in. The first person we meet in this chapter is Jehoahaz, son of Jehu. And if you remember chapter 10 from a couple of weeks ago, King Jehu was the king of Israel in the north that God gave a special promise. You might not remember, but let me remind you, refresh your memory. God said to him, four generations of your sons will sit on the throne in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so as chapter 13 kicks off, and as we go back to now the line of the kings of the north in Israel, what we're expecting is a son of Jehu. We've been told God would do that. That's what we're expecting. And so we get one in Jehoahaz, the first son of Jehu. And the other thing we're expecting is for this king to be pretty hopeless. Remember, all thumbs down for the kings of Israel. We're expecting him to be like all the other kings of Israel. So look at verse 2, chapter 13, verse 2. He, Jehoahaz, did what was evil in the Lord's sight and followed the sins that Jeroboam, son of the bat, had called Israel to commit. And he did not turn away from them. It's what we expect. And because of that, again, we're expecting what? We're expecting judgment. We've been in 1-2 Kings for a while now. We're expecting judgment because of the rebellion. So look at verse 3. Where do we get verse 3? The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he surrendered them to the power of Hazael, king of Aram, and his son Ben-Hadad during their reigns. All the sort of stuff we're expecting. And just cast your mind back to chapter 8. Uh, we saw this back in chapter 8. Elisha, when he first met Hazael, and he said to him, he said to Hazel, you're going to be king of Aram. God has told me you're going to be king. Do you remember, do you remember what Elisha did when he said to Hazel, you're going to be king of Aram? Elisha wept. He wept because he knew how God was going to use this king of Aram, Hazel, to basically horrendously oppress Israel and basically almost destroy them. Elisha wept at that. And that's what we're beginning to see here, just like God said it would happen. King Hazel was oppressing Israel. It's all the stuff we're expecting. But what we're not expecting is what happens next. Look from verse 4. Then Jehoahaz sought the Lord's favor. And the Lord heard him, for he saw the oppression that the king of Aram, that's Hazel, inflicted on Israel. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, and they escaped from the power of the Arameans. You see, what we don't expect as we read this is for this king of Israel in the north to seek the Lord. It just doesn't happen in one or two kings. Yes, you get the ones, the kings of the south in Judah. Remember, some good kings, they seek the Lord, but, but not the ones from the north. They don't care about the Lord. They don't seek the Lord. It rarely ever happens. And so at this point, you, you get a little bit positive. You begin to wonder, is there hope for the northern kingdom of Israel? Finally, are Israel and her kings in the north realizing that the Lord is king? Are they realizing that actually the Lord is powerful to save? 
that they should rightly worship him and him alone and, and put away all their moronic idolatry, because that's what idolatry is. It's, it's moronic. It's idiotic. So there's hope. But then look at the rest of verse 5. So what does God do? He rescues them. But then the rest of verse 5, then the people of Israel dwelt in their tents as before, verse 6, but they didn't turn away from the sins that the house of Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. And Jehoahaz walked in them. And the Asherah pole also remained standing in Samaria. And so as quickly as you get this hope for Israel in the north, or just as quickly that hope is gone. And it's just, it's just really sad. I hope that as we've seen this over and over again in 1 and 2 Kings, I hope it just saddens you as we read this. You see, God is ever, ever, ever so gracious. They, they sin and, and they turn to him. And, and God in his graciousness and mercy, he saves them. He's so gracious and yet the people are ever and ever and ever so sinful. And it's really easy to read this and accuse Jehoahaz of just being so fickle. You know, one second, there he is, seeking God's favor. It seems he's repentant. And in the next second, he's back to his idolatrous ways. But I don't think this happens overnight. I don't think the picture here is, you know, day one, Jehoahaz thinks, oh, well, we're in trouble, better repent, better turn to God. Day two, God gives this victory over Aram. And in day three, Jehoahaz goes, oh, well, I'm just going to go back to my idol worship now. That's not how it happens. See, see, Jehoahaz, he was king over Israel for 17 years. This, this little event here is, is describing months, years, decades perhaps. You see, it was a slide back to idolatry for Jehoahaz. And so there's a warning for us here. I love this verse from 1 Corinthians 10. It's up on the screen. And this verse is talking more specifically about Israel in the wilderness for 40 years under Moses, if you remember that. But it rightly applies to all of the Old Testament. But Paul writes this. He writes, Now these things, all these things written in the Old Testament, became examples for us, for the Christian. Why? So that we will not desire evil things as they did in those examples in the Old Testament. So that we don't become idolaters as some of them were. And so as we read here of Jehoahaz, this king of Israel, we, 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 we tend to think to ourselves, man, this guy was hopeless. That's what we think, right? We tend to think how fickle he is. You know, he seeks God's favor because stuff's hard and, and he's in anguish and they're, they're in ruin and they're, uh, they're oppressed by King Hazel. And then he goes and he seeks to God because things are so hard. But as soon as he gets what he wants, he just turns back to his old ways. And so we look at Jehoahaz and we think, this guy's hopeless. What a loser. Well, actually, instead of thinking that, we need to see this as an example to us. We need to learn, don't be like Jehoahaz. You see, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 10 that these Old Testament examples, they're written down for us as a warning, to heed them. We're not just to, to hear the Old Testament and think, oh, isn't that a pretty story? Oh, aren't they useless? Weren't they hopeless? I mean, they were... But these are warnings to us. They're examples. You see, we need to read this and then we need to ask ourselves the hard question. Can I be a little bit like Jehoahaz? See, do I only seek God when times are hard? And we do, don't we? When, when times are hard, when, when we're in a low state, we tend to pray more a lot of the time. We, we tend to depend more on God. 
And then when things are good, we tend to forget him. See, do I realize that I can be so fickle in my worship of God, just like Jehovah has? Are we aware that the sin that brought Jehovah has back to idolatry is the same sin that is still at work in our world today? See, J.C. Ryle writes this. It's up on the screen. He says, We are too apt to forget that temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in its true colors, saying, Hey, here I am. I'm your deadly enemy. And I want, I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh no. Sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss. The walking idly on his palace roof seemed harmless enough to David. Let us then watch and pray lest we fall into temptation. You see, I find Israel, and I hope you do too, I find Israel and her kings continued rebellion before such a gracious God so saddening. So moronic, to be honest. It really is moronic. And then I think how easily we can do the same. How sin is at work in us. You see, let us not be like Jehovah has. Let us hear the warnings and the example of this Old Testament passage. But as chapter 13 moves on, we then move on to the next son of Jehu, to Jehoash. They're not very creative, are they? Jehovah has one son, next son Jehoash. It's, you know, just drop a letter and it's all good. Uh, and Jehoash is, is the kind of second of four sons. Remember, there'll be four of them. This is number two now. So we're expecting this. And in verses 10 to 12, we get this very quick summary of what he did. doesn't tell us much. We'll actually meet Jehoash again in chapter 14 next week and see more about him. But the reason he's introduced to us now and here in chapter 13 is because of this story with Elisha. And uh, this is a section that, um, that Matt read out for us just before. And again, I, and you might have seen this as, as Matt read it, there's this glimmer of hope in this episode with Jehoash and Elisha. You see, in verse 14, what does Jehoash do? In verse 14, he goes to see Elisha. He, he hears that, that, that God's prophet is ill, and then he goes to see him. He even weeps over him. See, that's incredible. One and two kings. What do you know of the, the northern kingdom kings and how they think about Elijah and Elisha? The kings of the north, they want to go see Elisha and Elijah to do what? To kill them. <laughs> They hated them. They hated God's prophet. And yet here, it's incredible, Jehoash, there's this sign of hope. He goes to see Elisha and he weeps for him. And then Elisha gives Jehoash some instructions. So look at verse 15. Uh, Elisha says to him to go get a bow and arrows, and he does. He's obedient. Then verse 16, he tells him to grasp it. He does. Open the window, Elisha says, and he does shoot, and he shoots. It's great, it's obedient. And then Elisha declares these victorious words at the end of verse 17, the Jehoash, and these are victorious, great words. Let's have a look, end of verse 17. Then Elisha said, The Lord's arrow of victory, yes, the arrow of victory over Aram, you were to strike down the Arameans in Aphek until you have put them to an end. And it all sounds so good. It all sounds so positive for Jehoash, the king of Israel, and for that kingdom. And it would have been such a comfort for Jehoash. Again, just, just remember what King Hazel and the king of Aram and the Arameans were like. They were notorious killers. See, if you go back and read 2 Kings 8, Aram were to kill the young Israelite men with their swords. And Aram were to dash Israel's little ones, and think of toddlers, think of babies, they were to dash them into pieces. See, Aram were to go into Israel and they were to rip open the pregnant women 
to kill their children. It's horrendous. It's hideous. That, that they were to exterminate Israel. That's what they were like. That's what King Hazel was like. He was a notorious killer, which sadly was the normal stuff of wars. We, we need to be so much more thankful to God for the time that we live in and pray that we never see that sort of oppression. But that was normal. And so Jehoash at this point, he'd be thinking, fantastic. Elisha just said there would be victory. Aram will be defeated once for all. Finally, freedom for Israel. Peace. Perhaps even in our time. But then we get this rest of this little episode. So you look from verse 18. Then Elisha said, take the arrows. So he took them. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck the ground three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have struck down Aram until you had put an end to them. But now you will only strike down Aram three times. And there are all sorts of uh, theories on what's going on here. Uh, some are more funny than reasonable. So some people say, oh, Elisha knew that they were only going to beat them three times anyway. They're never going to destroy them altogether. But he was about to die, so he was just having some fun with Jehoash, king of Israel. He was just stirring him up. But at, at first read, I read this and I think, well, I, I reckon Jehoash did pretty well. See, if Elisha said to me, hey, Mike, strike the ground, I would have gone bang once. So Jehoash did it three times. I, I read this and I think that's pretty good. But whilst the details of the arrow and the amount of striking seem a little bit confusing to us, I, I think the point is really clear. So, sure, the details are strange to our ears. We don't know why the striking, why the ground, what it represents. We don't quite understand. But the point is really simple, isn't it? The text tells us. You see, Jehoash's response was too half-hearted. He wasn't committed enough. He wasn't truly faithful. See, it was three strikes he gave instead of five or six. You should have done it five or six times. More. That's the point. See, Elisha was angry and God only allows Israel to strike Aram three times because Israel and her kings, they're half-hearted. They're uncommitted. They're unfaithful. Three instead of five or six. That's the point. And that's part of what we need to learn from this chapter. You see, as we see this example of Israel and her kings, and we've seen it over and over again in 1 and 2 Kings, we're to mourn their lack of trust in God. We're to mourn it. We're kind of to think, you know, if, if only they would stick with the Lord. You know, if only they would seek Him Continually, not periodically. You know, Jehoah has. Times are tough. Now I'll seek the Lord. Times are good. I forget the Lord. You know, if only they would be wholehearted, not half-hearted like Jehoash. You see, if only they would realize the power of the one true God. Which I think is why we get this strange little episode in verses 20 and 21 uh, with Elisha's dead bones. You see, the God of Israel, he is so powerful. He is so able to save that, that even... Touching the dead, dry bones of Yahweh's former prophet, it revives a man. That's how powerful our God is. That's how incredible he is. You see, if only Israel would realize who their God is, but they didn't. And it begs the question, do we realize who the God of the Bible is? Really? 
Truly, think about it. See, do we realize and grasp how powerful and awesome our God is? And because of that, we then trust him. See, one thing that's uh, struck me is we've been thinking about prayer in our gospel teams. And, and if you don't know what a gospel team is, talk to Josh or, or talk to me. That's fine. You should be part of one. They're great. But one thing that struck me is we've, be, we've been thinking about prayer in our gospel teams. It's just how, how small our picture of God can be. I don't know if you've been struck by it. As we've read in that little book, what the psalmist says. Remember Psalm 63 came up in one of the devotions? Earnestly I seek you, God. With all of myself, I thirst for you as if in the dry desert. Uh, you think of how the New Testament writers talk about the awesomeness of God and the praiseworthiness of God. You see, I wonder if our picture of God needs to be much, much bigger. Uh, one of the guys in my gospel team uh, in the week, as we looked at that picture in Revelation 5, if you remember Revelation 5, it's this, this beautiful picture of, of every creature worshipping God. Remember Revelation 5? Blessing and honour and glory and power and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb. It's this great picture. And this guy in my gospel team said, I, I find that hard to fathom. I find that sort of full-on, full-of-life praise of God just forever and ever hard to grasp. And on one level, that is so right. In our sinful states, we just don't fathom that the power and awesomeness of God enough. But then we need and we must have an ever-increasing picture of our God, of just how awesome he is, of just how great he is, just how worthy he is. You see, Israel in the north and her kings did not have a big enough picture of God. Why do, why do they go chasing after idol gods and, and gods crafted by their own hands? It's because they didn't have a big enough picture of the one true God. If you have a big picture of the one true God, you don't go chasing after other things because he's the awesome one. See, they didn't have a big enough picture of God and so they worshipped other so-called gods and then they found themselves in a state of hopelessness. And now that Elisha is dead, and all we get about his death is what we see there in verse 20. He died and was buried. We don't hear about Elisha at all anymore. He doesn't come up at all in the Old Testament anymore. But now that Elisha is dead and the era of Elijah and Elisha is over, it really is hopeless for Israel. Like I said at the beginning, by the time we get to chapter 17, it's only a few chapters away, the northern kingdom of Israel will be no more. It won't exist as a kingdom. You see, this is, this is a hopeless chapter in so many ways. But we do get this one glimmer of hope at the end of chapter 13, and we'll finish with this. So have a look at now, have a look now at verses 22 to 24. And here uh, we meet King Haziel again, that, that wicked, oppressive king, and we hear of his continued oppression of Israel. So again, think of the killing of, of, of children and babies, you know, the, the, the image of the pregnant women. And eventually he dies. We read that in verse 24. But the bit I want us to notice is verse 23. See, so have a look at verse 23. Look at what that says. So imagine King Hazel, he's oppressing Israel, verse 23. But the Lord was gracious to Israel. He had compassion on them and turned toward them. Why? Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God was not willing to destroy them, Israel, in the north. Even now, which would have been two or three hundred years after that time, even now, 
He's not banished them from his presence. And that's a very interesting verse. Because who do the great promises of God belong to in the time of one and two kings when you've got the north and the south? Who, who do the promises belong to? Remember 2 Samuel 7, the promise of a forever king and a kingdom that will never end. Who's the promise for? It's for Judah in the south, not for the northern kingdom. And yet the promise of God here in verse 23, it goes back to the time of Genesis, back to the time of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, back before 2 Samuel 7, where God makes his promise with all of his people, not just the southern kingdom. And so whilst, yes, the end of the era of Elijah and Elisha spells the beginning of the end of the northern kingdom, and yes, they will get destroyed in chapter 17, and it will be no more, that doesn't mean that God has forgotten his promise. That doesn't mean that there's no hope whatsoever for these people of the north and the generations of the people who had belonged to that northern kingdom. And to see how God keeps his promise so incredibly, we have to go to the New Testament. And uh, here's a bit of an interactive quiz moment for you. This is not a rhetorical question. You know how preachers uh, ask rhetorical questions and then they answer their own question. That's not one of these moments. This is interactive time. And don't worry, if you get it wrong, there's only like you know, 20, 30 other people here that you'll be embarrassed in front of. So we're all good. Don't be shy. But uh, in the New Testament, when we get to the New Testament time, the time of Jesus... Who are the remnant of the northern kingdom of Israel? See, where, where do we find the bloodline from the old northern kingdom? Who, who are those people? Where are they from? Samaria. Well done. Top of the class. You get a cookie later. Samaria, the Samaritans, right? And do you remember what Jesus says in John chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman? Do you remember? She, this Samaritan woman, she comes to Jesus to ask him questions about worship. And she asks him about what, where is the right place and what is the right mode of worship? You know, is it in the north, in the northern kingdom area, like the Samaritans do, or is it in the south, in Jerusalem, like the Jews do? And she asks, who's right? Is it the northern kingdom? Is it the southern kingdom? Who is it? Tell me, Jesus. And Jesus gives this incredible response. John chapter 4, it's up on the screen. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain in the northern kingdom area in Samaria nor in Jerusalem in the south. You Samaritans in the north, you worship what you do not know. Remember, the promise lies with the southern kingdom in the south. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews, from the south. But look at what Jesus says next. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that an end of an era has come. No more will worship of God be confined to a place, the north or the south, and no more will the worship of God be confined to a people, to the Jews in the south, with the southern kingdom having the promise. No, no, the worship of God will now be open to all people, to those in the north who, who, who were, that kingdom was destroyed, but the promise is still for them. And those in the south, and while you're at it, those in the east and west, because it doesn't matter where you're from, the worship of God is now open to all people. All people can worship in spirits. And truth, if only they would trust in Jesus. 
And so you see that that is the era, the era that we live in now. You see, we live in the time of God's grace in Jesus, his son. See, do you realize that we actually live in the most blessed of times? The Old Testament times was not the most blessed of times. They were looking forward to the promises. We've seen them come in Jesus. We live in the most blessed of times. See, forget what you read in the news. You know, forget the state of the economy because it's not good at the moment. Uh, forget what you hear of wars and the rumors of wars or nuclear war for that matter, which is in the, in the papers. See, Jesus, Jesus tells us don't be alarmed at those things. These things must and will take place. Don't be deceived by them. No, no, no. Realize that we live in the most blessed of times because we live in the era of Jesus, the Christ, as king. See, we live in a time where God kept his promise to the south of the forever king because Jesus has come. We live in a time where God kept his promise to the north that he would never abandon them, he would never destroy those people completely, and we see Jesus fulfill that promise as he talks to the Samaritan woman, and we live in a time where God has kept his promise to save all of us, all people, because of Jesus, his son. See, chapter 13 is a hopeless chapter in so many ways, but you always see the promises of God. And we live in the time not of hopelessness, but of hope because of Jesus, God's Son. Well, let me pray that we might grasp how special this time is. Heavenly Father, we do pray and ask that you might help us to grow in our picture of you, that we would not be half-hearted and uncommitted, and unfaithful, that we might grasp just how truly amazing you are and that we might be more thankful to you for the time that we live in, the time of fulfilled promises in Jesus, your Son, that we might know salvation in him and know of the new creation to come. This we thank you for in Jesus' name. Amen.